Our reading is verse 44 through 58. Matthew 13. Let us pray again as we come to the public reading of Scripture and its preaching. Let us pray for the help of the living God. Our gracious God, we have indeed even heard tonight from the Apostle that you have put the watering in the hand of men, but it is you who caused the growth. It is not us. Oh, Father, we thank you and praise you for this testimony, how it delivers us from so much folly. But it is a testimony of our great need to appeal to you, O Lord, especially upon the occasion of your scriptures being read and preached tonight. Father, we, we do not want to make too little of thing of that which you are about to do for us. And so we indeed, O Lord, make our appeal and ask that you would grant each and every one ears to hear and hearts to believe and wills to obey. We pray that you would come and help us or else there is no help for us. We can find it nowhere, not even in ourselves. So Lord, we pray that you would in great kindness for the sake of Jesus Christ, who has indeed reconciled us to everything that you are, come and help us and grant us ears to hear. In Jesus' name, amen. Matthew 13, verse 44 and following. This is the word of God. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value, went and sold all that he had and bought it. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was thrown into the sea and gathered fish of every kind. When it was full, men drew it ashore and sat down and sorted the good into containers, but threw away the bad. So it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Have you understood all these things? They said to him, yes. And he said to them, therefore, every scribe who has been trained for the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who brings out of his treasure what is new and what is old. What and when Jesus had finished these parables, he went away from there, and coming to his hometown, he taught them in their synagogue, so that they were astonished and said, Where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? And are not his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? And are not all his sisters with us? Where then did this man get all these things? 
and they took offense at him. But Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor, except in his hometown and in his own household. And he did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. This is God's word. What would you hear from friends, from family, from business colleagues, from financial advisors? If you made it known you had sold everything in order to buy just this one thing. I suspect you would hear those friends, family, and advisors express great bewilderment with you, alarm, shock, fear even. They would think you had become unhinged, crazy, dangerous. They would think you had lost your ability to see life in its proper proportions. Give up everything to obtain just one thing? What were you thinking? What's wrong with you? How foolish. How radical. The only thing you could say which would make no one feel better is, the one thing I now have is worth more than everything I gave up but they would not see it. In our Lord's teaching tonight, he makes it clear that the situation you just heard is just like the situation his kingdom thrusts upon us. The kingdom of heaven is of such great value that some men and women are gladly giving up the very things their friends and their families are desperately clinging to. But these men and women are giving those things up to gain the kingdom. In fact, Jesus is also making the point, you must give those things up to gain the kingdom. There is no other way to take possession of the kingdom. But once you see how valuable the kingdom is, it will not feel like a painful sacrifice to lose what you must to gain it. As missionary Jim Elliott said, he is no fool to lose that which he cannot keep, to gain that which he can never lose. Jesus says it will be joy, verse 44. It will be joy, not misgiving, joy, not fear, joy, not reservation. Joy will carry out all of the losing for all of the gaining. Now, here's what makes all of this even more alarming. The great value of the kingdom is not apparent to everyone. Not everyone sees its worth. It is hidden. If everyone saw it, everyone would be selling everything they own so they could get the treasure or get the pearl. But not everyone is selling because not everyone is seeing And we should be clear about this matter of selling. Our Lord's first two parables here are not about a literal exchange of cash money. You cannot literally sell your way into the kingdom by becoming poor. You cannot literally buy your way into the kingdom by purchasing a piece of land. This is a parable. 
The language of selling and buying is about something else. Something other than an exchange of cash or land. But that something else, don't misunderstand, it is something real. That something else is something solid. And it is best represented by a wealth money metaphor. Or more precisely, it is best represented by a giving up one's wealth metaphor. What then is this very real something else? It is your love for the world. That's what it is. It is your love for the world. How much do you value your place in this world? How much do you value what this world offers and what this world promises and what this world gives? Do you want to be happy in this world? Do you want to make progress in this world? Do you want to be important and popular and admired in this world? Is that what you value? Is living a long life in this world the most valuable thing to you? Or do you want to be happy in the kingdom of heaven? Make progress in the kingdom of heaven. Be admired in the kingdom of heaven. Go read Paul's last chapter to the Romans and look at all of those men and women whom he admires and by writing out their names to us invites us to admire them on the same grounds that he does. Or do you just want to be admired by the people of this world, of this age? What then, we must ask, is our Lord talking about? Let's start with this. What is the kingdom of heaven? It's all over our text. What is the kingdom of heaven? Well, one short answer we can use comes from a text we were working in just last month. Matthew 12, 28. There Jesus was accused of casting out demons by Beelzebul. But he responded, If it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. I read this text to you this morning. Matthew 12, 28. What is the kingdom then? Well, in shorthand, it is the rule of God in salvation. In longhand, it is the power of God, and Matthew 12, 28 is a good proof text here. The kingdom is the power of God breaking Satan's rule over sinful men to bring those men under God's rule and conform them to the image of God's Son in a salvation free of sin's penalty and sin's power. That's the kingdom. That's the kingdom of heaven. So with that said, there is more to be said, and we can draw this right out of our text tonight. We can say also this about the kingdom of heaven. It is both a present and a future reality mediated to us through Jesus Christ. We see the kingdom's present reality in the first two parables. Those who are blessed to see the kingdom's great worth, they take possession of the kingdom in this life. It is in this present life where they sell all. 
And it is in this present life where they gain all. That which is worth more than what they sell. The kingdom of heaven, then, is not just a future reality. When you hear that phrase, don't think after I'm dead. The kingdom of heaven is upon you. The rule of, the rule of God in Christ has broken the power of Satan over you. He has removed sin's penalty from you. He has given you the life of God through the Spirit, and he is now conforming you into the image of his Son. The kingdom of heaven is present, but it is also future. And we see this in the third parable, the parable of the net. At present, the kingdom is like a net sweeping through the ocean, gathering fish of every kind, the text says. But at some point in the future, at the end of the age, the text says, the work of catching will cease and the work of sorting will begin. And it will be a brief work. Bad fish will be thrown away, thrown into the fiery furnace. But at present, the kingdom, at present, the kingdom is gathering all kinds of people. What we see now at present will be quite different than what we will see in the future. At present, we do not see a kingdom that is just righteous fish. But in the future, we will. In the future, all evil will be removed, and the kingdom will appear very different to us than it appears now. Some who we thought would be, would be kept on the last day will be thrown away. And some who we thought would be thrown away will be kept. And some of your friends may be surprised about you. I hope that's not the case. The lesson is, we are not to overthink the nature of the kingdom in its present age, for it is not fully visible. Only the Lord's angels will be able to sort things out. And so this parable of the net is actually very much like the parable of the wheat and tares. Well, now that we have defined the kingdom sum, I want to go back and go through these parables in a little bit more detail. And I want to draw some lessons from the parables before we end up working through verse 51 and 52. So we have three parables before us. In verse 44, we have parable one, the treasure hidden in a field. Now let's just get the facts first of this parable. The situation is described very plainly enough. A man is in a field. He is either working or he is walking passing from one place to another, perhaps. And suddenly, unexpectedly, he finds a treasure of incomparable worth. All his possessions taken together are worth less than the treasure he has just found. Now, hidden treasures like this were very common in the ancient world. We even have another reference to one in Matthew's Gospel. In chapter 25, verse 25, we hear about a man taking a talent of gold and hiding it in the ground. A talent of gold at that time would be valued about 20 years' worth of daily wages. People often used the dirt as their bank. But sometimes you died unexpectedly and forgot to tell somebody where you put your money. 
Or sometimes you, well, forgot that you even had the money. That's the basic facts of this parable of the Lord. And when we hear this, we should understand that we are not to look very deeply into ethical dilemmas that we might think are in this parable. That's not the purpose of the parable. And it would be easy to write an entire book about the ethical dilemmas of this parable. Do you know why? Because the rabbis did that. Well, not about this parable. They wrote an entire list of rules about what to do with treasure that you found in certain places. And there were all sorts of different schematics in the rules of who you have to tell, what kind of treasure you don't have to tell, etc., etc., etc. We are not here to bring that kind of scrutiny to the Lord's parable. It is enough for us to understand that if the owner of the field is willing to sell the field, it means he does not know what is hidden in his own field. No one is obligated to tell him. But the larger point is that the treasure is so close to the first owner, but still so far from the first owner. He doesn't know what is near. Jesus Christ has come bringing the kingdom. He has brought it right to Jerusalem. He has brought it among the people who would be most ripe to hear and see it, the scribes, the Pharisees, the lawyers. It is right in their backyard, and they cannot see its great value. And that, beloved, helps you understand how chapter 13 ends, which is a paragraph I will not be preaching on tonight. But notice the opposition our Lord finds from those who know him well. Here's the treasure in their own yard, in their own town, and they are disgusted with it. They devalue it, the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, back to our first parable then. The man who owns the field before it is purchased does not see the great treasure. And the man who finds it has likely been hired to work there for a day or for a season. But this man who finds the treasure, he will now, he now will not rest. He will not rest until he is in possession of the treasure of the kingdom. He cannot just go home and relax. He must start trying to have a yard sale, have an estate sale. He must be busy divesting all that he owns so he can have this possession. Beloved, this is a picture to you of the zeal of which we sung a moment ago in a psalm. This is a picture of the zeal that belongs to the children of God. When we begin to see the great value of Jesus Christ, when we begin to see the great value of the gospel of our salvation, when we begin to see the great value of the church, the value of the sacraments, the value of the word, when we begin to see the value and glory of the kingdom, we become restless until we are confident and sure we possess it. Now, I want to make one more point about this first parable. Do you see how the joy of discovery becomes the joy of loss? 
There's no bitterness in selling all that he must sell. His joy at his discovery carries him through every step of divestiture without dilution. He's joyfully giving stuff away at discount even so he can have every dollar he needs. In our recent marriage class in Sunday school, Paul Tripp, I think, illustrated this very well. But he was being, well, dead serious. He said we should see more and more Christians when the gospel becomes the very foundation of all that they desire and want to do. We should see more and more Christians being willing to even live in smaller houses, to even turn down the dial on their ambitions for advancement in this world so that they can make progress and prosper in the enjoyment of the great value of Christ's kingdom. Why would they do that? Is it because there is a divine law that tells them they must do that? No. They do that because enjoying the kingdom of God in their lives is worth far more than whatever they would have to lose to enjoy it. You see, it is man's chief end to glorify God and enjoy him. And you cannot enjoy God. Please hear this. And I'm going to probably say this four different ways before we're done. You cannot enjoy God as a savior God. You cannot enjoy him in his true value by keeping everything in this world, by getting more of everything in this world. You must even test your own heart to see if you rightly see the value of the kingdom. You must test your own heart even, not under the banner of a law, but under the banner of seeing the worth of Christ and his kingdom. Let's go on then to our next parable, and we will have some things to say here that fit very well with the first parable, for there is much in common, but there is something significantly different. Now, the facts of parable number two. There is a merchant who is always busy scouring the earth, in search of fine pearls. Now, he is a man of skill, a man of discrimination. He knows what a mediocre pearl looks like, and he knows what a fine pearl looks like. And he knows how not to get fooled, how to avoid settling for the good pearl when the better pearl is nearby. He searches for goodly pearls, as the King James translates it. But he did not think he would find the one he does find. A pearl of such great value, he must have it, even though it will cost him everything he has. Presumably, he has many fine pearls that he will now also divest himself of so he can have this one pearl. But amazingly, this pearl of great value is for sale. Why? Why can he buy it? Because the owner does not recognize its worth. The owner of this pearl is like the owner of the field, blind to the great value of the kingdom that is right near him. Its owner does not really know what he has, but this merchant knows what he has, 
and he will have it no matter what it takes to have it. Now, there's something else going on in this second parable. In this parable, we are discovering afresh that we are surrounded by those who do not appreciate the kingdom. This is the world that Christ has set us in. We are surrounded by people who do not appreciate the gospel. The man who first owned the field does not know what a wonderful thing is near him. The man who owns the pearl of great price does not know what a valuable pearl it is. The point is this. You and I should never try to value the kingdom of God's saving rule in Christ by looking at how other men value it. Please do hear this. It is a very dangerous and ruinous path to take your estimation of Christ, your estimation of the gospel, your estimation of living for God from the way other men value it. Many do not value it. Few find it. Beloved, if necessary, look look closer at the kingdom than your friends do. Look closer than your family does. Look closer than everyone, even those who are your earthly dearest. Do not measure the value of the kingdom by their measurement of its value. Listen to what people talk about. This is always a good test. People talk about what they value. You'll find out very quickly what are the riches of a man's heart by the words that come out of his mouth. For out of the heart the mouth speaks. You know, in some ways, I wish that this weren't such a perfect test. In some ways, I wish that what I hear men talking about was really not what they truly value. It's just they're being nice or being sociable or being something. But it is not true. They talk about their treasure. Every man does. Don't believe the lie. For out of the heart, the mouth speaks. Men who find things in this world of their greatest value, that's all they can talk about. And do understand, I'm not talking about that you and I cannot sit down and talk about the best way to sell a car or the best way to you know, buy groceries on discount during 11% inflation. We can talk about those things. We're not advancing this idea of world flight. But beloved, there are, per- there are people who can never talk about Jesus Christ. You know why? It's not because they're shy. They talk about a lot of other things. They can't talk about Jesus because they do not see him as the pearl of great price. They do not see him as the treasure hidden in the field. Do not get your estimation of Jesus Christ from other men's estimation of Jesus Christ. Look into his word. He is giving these very parables to his disciples for the very purpose of being the one who gives them the estimation of himself and his kingdom. 
Now, there's one more point I'd like to make from this second parable. To experience the real value of the gospel, we are going to have to give some things up. In Luke 14, verse 33, our Savior says, Any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Matthew 19, 29, And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my namesake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. See the value of the kingdom? Hebrews 10, 34, You joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. There's that same joy. Hebrews 11, 24, and 25, and 26. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt. Why are all these scriptures, and several more, in the New Testament? Because they, even though they are drawing sometimes on Old Testament figures like Moses, they are pressing upon the church who now lives in the fullness of time that Jesus Christ and his kingdom is worth more than anything of this world. And you must lose the things of this world to gain that which you can never lose. And beloved, it is not regulated according to law It is regulated according to worth and joy. You cannot see its worth if you're not willing to lose anything. You have no joy if you're not willing to lose anything. You have no joy in Christ. You see not the worth of Christ if you can't lose anything. But there are some really good things that you might want to lose. And this is where something about this second parable is different. Did you notice that this merchant is shopping for fine pearls. He is shopping for the very thing he ends up finding just one of that is worth more than all the ones he's ever owned. He's shopping for fine pearls. I take this to be a man who is a religionist, who is shopping for all the possible ways to deal with man's greatest problem, which is sin, is it not? Think of all the ways that people engage in religion in a a search for an answer to their sin problem. They have sin in their heart. They have sin between them and a computer screen. They have sin in their home. They have sin in so many parts of their life, and they are always searching for some solution, a book, a conference, a law, Oh, yes, give us the law. That will defeat sin. No, it won't. There is one pearl that defeats sin. It is the pearl of great price. It is the Savior Jesus Christ dwelling in you in grace and power, removing from you sin's penalty and defeating sin's power and dominion over you. He is the great pearl. We must come to him if we will have any rest 
and joy, even in our fight against sin. I believe our Lord is specifically poking his finger on the sternum of many legalistic Jews in the city of Jerusalem with this second parable. This brings us then to the last parable, 47 through 50, the parable of the net in the sea and the same net on the shore. The facts of the parable. A large dragnet is used to catch fish of every kind. This is not a largemouth bass net. <laughs> this is not a walleye net. This is a dragnet that you have a couple men stretch out and drop low in the water, and they move it across the water with boats on the move with it. It is catching fish of every kind. Thus, the fish being caught are not being carefully selected. The issue of careful selection is not apparent in the present season of catching. But the selection will become apparent and very important in the future when catching season is done and sorting season begins. At the end of the age, the net will be pulled to shore and the angels of God will separate the bad fish from the righteous fish. That's our parable in brief. Now, the point of the parable is not that God is ignorant of what he is gathering into his kingdom in this age. He knows what is in the net, even while it is under the sea. The point is, we do not know. We do not see in the present activity of the kingdom the great separation that is coming at the judgment. Simply put, do not try to organize the kingdom in this present age by the rule of separation. The rule of separation is for the kingdom at the end of the age. I'll explain that in a moment. We do not see in the present activity of the kingdom the great separation that is coming at the judgment, and we should not be overly anxious to see this separation before its time. Now is the time to gather. And this means something else. The kingdom of heaven is more gracious than some people want it to be. Now, we are not by any means suggesting that there is, should be no such thing as excommunication from the church of Jesus Christ. But we are suggesting something else. Well, the Lord is telling us something else. The Lord Jesus Christ is telling us that we are not to be active in selecting the excellent elect fish in this present activity of the kingdom of heaven. We are to gather everyone into the church who will make a true and simple profession of faith in Jesus Christ. And the Lord will sort them out at the end of the age. The function of the rule of God and salvation in this time is to save men, not to judge men. And there have been many gross errors in the history of the Christian church when we have thought that the activity of the kingdom of heaven in this present time is an activity of judgment. Judgment is coming. That is certainly the point of the third parable. In fact, the focus of the third parable is almost entirely on the judgment of the wicked. But there is one significant detail 
And that is that the wicked are picked out from among, the text says. From among, literally out of the middle of the righteous. So until the final judgment, there can be no separate existence for the true people of God. The wicked will be in the midst of them. This is the wheat and tares parable restated. Now the Lord then brings us to two brief verses, 51 and 52. He says to his disciples, Have you understood all these things? They said to him, Yes. And he said to them, Therefore, every scribe who has been trained for the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who brings out of his treasure what is new and what is old. Now, this word understand is actually the key to these last two verses. Have you understood? Multiple times in chapter 13, verse 13, verse 14, verse 15, verse 19, verse 23, multiple times the Lord has said to his disciples, it is given to you to understand, but not to them. It is given to you to understand. The Lord is asking his close band of disciples, do they understand his parables? And as they make the affirmation, yes, and they'll need to be re-educated several times before the Lord's resurrection, but as they make the affirmation, yes, here, he then upgrades all of them to the status of scribe in his kingdom. They are all to be teachers and writers of the truths of God. And now that they have learned what the kingdom of heaven really looks like in this present age, they can go and bring out of the master's house his treasure in what is new and in what is old. What this simply means, I believe, is our Lord Jesus is telling his disciples that only under the teaching that they are receiving from him will they be able to properly divide the word of truth, properly use the law and gospel, properly set before the church and the world the Old Testament and the New Testament, properly set before them a true redemptive historical theology that centers upon Jesus Christ.